to save time, braving terrain that's vulnerable to rockfall or avalanche, trusting that the afternoon thunderstorms will hold long enough for him to get below treeline. Climbers spend much of their time drawing lines, consciously or otherwise, between acceptable risks and unacceptable ones. Many of the stories, essays, and other selections in this book are about danger and its consequences, which include the losses climbers and their loved ones sometimes suffer. John Long contributes two short pieces to the collection. The Green Arch tells how he and his young friends turned to climbing to distinguish themselves, even if it meant putting their lives on the line. Later, as an established hotshot on Yosemite's big walls, Long stumbled upon what he calls the only blasphemy in the essay of that name. His revelation occurred on a day when he set out to cover 2,000 feet of hard climbing without a rope, and the discovery was elemental. But was it worth the risk? Some writers treat these matters as routine or as material for comedy. Hamish McInnes suffers a skull fracture high on the Bonatti pillar of the Petit Dru, and with a little help from friends, finishes the route. Neither he nor his companion seem terribly put out. Fellow Scotsman Tom Patey, a strong climber and a very funny man, makes the dangers of the Eiger's notorious north face seem wildly amusing. Patey died in a 1970 repelling accident. But what's attractive about danger? Here's an idea. Danger makes us face things, which is the same thing as noticing them. The mountains are all the more beautiful at those moments when we realize that sooner, or, if we are careful and fortunate, later, we will lose them, and with them everything else that we've learned to value and love. Family, work, cake dog, music, comfort, love itself. Maybe we visit the mountains to pay our respects to death, which is nothing more or less than loss, and to life, which likewise amounts to a series of losses, children growing up, friends and acquaintances moving on, parents and spouses dying, even ourselves, this very self, the one that belongs to me, growing older and eventually ceasing to be. When I was nine years old, an adult explained to me that time starts to run out the day that we're born. He was right, and I knew it. At that age, I couldn't lie to myself with the sophistication required to deny so fundamental and obvious a truth. But it may be that such lies become easier to spin and believe as we get older. Or maybe we're more desperate to believe them. Even so, we spend some of our time looking for what's true, and some of us find it in the mountains. In the mountains, we sometimes get so interested in what we are doing that we forget to hide from the truth, which is change, which implies our own death. The mountains sometimes can remind us that this very moment must serve for eternity, and sometimes when we are in the mountains, that is enough. I'm saying that a phrase like addicted to danger may be just another phrase for an addiction to seeing things the way things are, to being awake to the facts which include our inevitable, our continual losses. Maureen O'Neill writes an essay about losing friends and climbing partners who have died in the mountains. It is, in part, an essay about what it is like to climb. Something inside says, yes, yes, I recognize this. I want to see the earth above all, with nothing hidden. The same laws that govern this world govern the life of my body and soul, and it is a relief, finally, to see violence and beauty erupt, both parts of the whole. 
Often, while climbing on hard or dangerous ground, there is a temptation to ignore obstacles and hazards, to forge ahead, hoping for the best. If you do that and then arrive safely at the next ledge, you can cite this as proof that you acted wisely, that you did the right thing. But you eventually will pay a price for such self-deception. Here is a passage from a piece New Hampshire climbing guide Michael Jewell gives his students who want to learn to lead. The leader on a rope team goes first, placing protection as he climbs. His risk is thus greater than his partner's. Although it is possible to substantially limit the risks of leading, learning to lead is a deadly serious game. You must never forget for a moment that even the shortest fall can cause harm. Broken legs, spinal damage, and head injuries are real consequences of poor focus, distorted priorities, and sloppy management. The gist of the document, which runs for some ten pages, is simple. If you are leading and you lie to yourself about anything, if you rationalize or pretend, you might get hurt or killed. I find something appealing about an activity that demands such allegiance to the way things are, that so clearly requires you to face your own fragility. There is something stunning and even gorgeous about the fact that a lie can cause you to take a thirty-foot fall onto a ledge, maybe breaking an arm and a leg, maybe even dying of hypothermia if it rains and you didn't bring a jacket and your partner gets lost going for help. These things all happen. Two weeks ago, Accidents in North American Mountaineering 1999 arrived in the mail. I always read it, for the stories and for the analysis of accidents, trying to learn from other people's mistakes and misfortune. This year's edition brought news of twenty fatalities in reported mountaineering accidents in the United States during 1998. Greg Kowalski, age unknown, fell seventy feet when a knot came untied. Richard Ledoux, thirty-seven, was climbing ice without a rope when he fell one hundred feet. He died nine hours later during a rescue attempt. An ice avalanche killed Russ Peterson, forty, while he was belaying a friend on a winter climb. Daniel O'Malley, rock climbing in Pennsylvania, dislodged a rock that knocked him off his climb and severed his rope. The fall killed him. The American Alpine News arrived in the same package. Its last page was an obituary to Canadian climber Jim Hoberl, an avalanche victim last spring on Ultima Thule Peak in the University Range of the Wrangell-St. Elias Park in Alaska. Jim's been dead for six months now, but it came as news to me. I knew him only slightly. We corresponded when I was compiling the stories for another anthology in 1998. Jim was kind enough to let me include in that book a passage from one of his books, K2, Dreams and Reality. The passage describes his 1993 ascent of the world's second highest mountain. He reached the summit with his friend Dan Culver, but Culver slipped on the way down to their high camp and fell to his death. Jim watched him fall. Now Jim is dead, too. Climber Joe Simpson called his second book, This Game of Ghosts. Seems like a good title for a climbing book. But ghosts are everywhere, aren't they? Everywhere, the dead outnumber the living. My younger child wants to know if there are cheeseburgers in heaven. Last night I went to a concert. At intermission, I stood in a line of mostly older men, filing slowly through a sort of tunnel into the men's room. I suddenly imagined the line ending in darkness. Here I was, standing with these old men, all of us shuffling toward the dark, getting closer. 
About twice a year I wake up in the night alive to my mortality, utterly convinced that everything will end for me someday. It is an intense, fluttery feeling. Not terrible, but not comfortable. I went climbing for a couple of days last week with a friend I'll call Robert. I spent much of the second day frustrated and a little scared. I was practicing skills that were new to me. It was safe, but at moments it didn't feel as safe as it was. That night I described to Robert my fluttery feeling, that sense of being awash in the knowledge of my own death. Robert replied that he has something like it every single night, only stronger. He feels the dark trying to crush him, taking away the light and joy, all that he values and loves, his friends, his climbing, his life. Maybe that is why Robert climbs more than anyone I know. Climbing is no salve for feelings of mortality. Rather, it can help force us to believe them. But in believing, we accept. In accepting, we live. We fill up with whatever light is available to us, the light of the here and the now. And so Robert has been climbing most days for almost three decades. He turned fifty a while ago and had his first serious accident. He fell eight feet and broke his leg badly. Three months later, he went to the Alps. He had to crawl across talus to get to the base of some of the climbs. Some of my other climbing partners have had worse mishaps. One broke his back. Another fractured his skull and lay in a coma for weeks. A third broke his back and shattered both knees. They're all still climbing. The one who fractured his skull did it in the early 1970s. He's sixty-ish now, and he's been climbing for almost forty years. Vili Unsold minus the toes in that jar, went back to the mountains until one of them killed his daughter in 1976. He kept going back even then until an avalanche killed him in 1979. He was 52 years old. Some people don't walk away from climbing. They're dragged or they're carried. The mountains teach us to love. I think of Charles Dickens. I think of my mother listening to music from South Pacific and singing along. I think of my wife and her stepmother on horses. I think of my father dressing for a Mardi Gras party. I think of my sister down in Louisiana knitting something warm for her first grandchild who lives in Texas. I think of Harold Brodkey writing or talking about writing or sending faxes of his drawings to my children. I think of Steve Longenecker at Devil's Courthouse in 1974. I think of my brother in Linville Gorge in 1968. Ian Turnbull in Huntington Ravine, Mike Jewell on Cathedral Ledge talking about birds, my older son on Otter Cliff, his brother, age ten, crossing a snowfield in Wyoming last July. I think of my dearest companions. Clint Willis Climbers know John Long, born 1953, for his gung-ho ascents in Yosemite during the 70s and 80s, and for his instructional rock-climbing books and videos. Readers know him for his anthologies of various writers' work, and for his own stories about climbing and other adventures. Here, Long writes about his youth, when ambition boiled down to one directive, climb the hardest routes before someone else does. The Green Arch by John Long. 
We came from nowhere towns like Upland, Cucamonga, Ontario, and Montclair. None of us had done anything more distinguished than chase down a fly ball or spend a couple of nights in juvenile hall. But we saw rock climbing as a means to change all that. The Lonely Challenge, The White Spider, Straight Up, we'd read them all, could recite entire passages by heart. It is impossible to imagine a group more fired up by the romance and glory of the whole climbing business than we were. There was just one minor problem. There were no genuine mountains in Southern California. But there were plenty of rocks, good ones, too. Every Saturday morning during the spring of 1972, about a dozen of us would jump into a medley of the finest junkers $200 could buy and blast for the little mountain hamlet of Idlewild, home of Taquitz Rock. The last 26 miles to Idlewild follows a twisting road steep and perilous in spots. More than one exhausted Volkswagen bus or wheezing old rambler got pushed a little too hard, blew up and was abandoned. The plates stripped off and the driver, leaden with rope and pack, thumbing on toward Mecca. We had to get to a certain greasy spoon by eight o'clock when our little group, the Stonemasters, would meet, discuss an itinerary, wolf down some food, and storm off to the crags with all the subtlety of a spring hailstorm. The air was charged because we were on a roll, our faith and gusto growing with each new route we bagged. The talk within the climbing community was that we were crazy, or liars, or both, and this sat well with us. We were loud-mouthed eighteen-year-old punks, and proud of it. Taquitz was one of America's hot climbing spots, with a pageant of pivotal ascents reaching back to when technical climbing first came to the States. America's first 5-8, the mechanics route, and 5-9, the open book routes, were bagged at Taquitz, as was the notion and the deed of the first free ascent, a route first done with aid but later climbed without it the Piton Pooper 5-7, circa 1946. John Mendenhall, Chuck Wiltz, Mark Powell, Royal Robbins, Tom Frost, T.M. Herbert, Yvonne Schwinard, Bob Camps, and many others had all learned the ropes there. The Stonemasters arrived about the same time that the previous generation of local hardcores, a high-blown group consisting of would-be photographers and assistant